Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Annie Lowry, a contributing editor at The Atlanta. Excuse me. A contributing editor. <laughs> she's already laughing. Sorry. Uh, A contributing editor at The Atlantic and the author of the new book, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. It's about UBI, or a universal basic income, the idea that the government would give all its citizens a check every month. Versions of this proposal have caught on with people on the left, as well as tech leaders in Silicon Valley and some right-wing libertarians. Lowry has written for many years now about economics, but Give People Money is both a reported work, she travels to Kenya, South Korea, and India to view their economic experiments, and a policy brief on what Lowry believes can help ail some of the social and political discontent that has arisen, in part, from economic and social dislocation. Annie Lowry joins me now from Washington, D.C. Hi, Annie. Hey, Isaac. A decade ago, we were we were struggling journalists drinking iced teas together at Caribou Coffee in that city, Washington, D.C., and talking about whether we would be able to make careers in journalism and Brideshead Revisited and other things like that. And now you're a hotshot author. Yeah. And now you're like a hotshot interviewer oh, and podcast stop, host. I'm stop, stop, stop. terrified yeah, that yeah. you're going to bring your hardest questions yeah. here. Anyway, yeah, no, we've known each other for a long time back when it's funny because I feel like journalism still feels like a sort of tenuous profession and the money is still kind of eroding and increasingly we're like reliant on, you know, kind of benevolent or not benevolent billionaires. But back then it was it was really scary. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. Yeah. Well, we were also just younger. And stupider. Yeah, that's true. All kinds of things. Um, Okay. First off, because I only sketched this very lightly in the intro, what exactly is a universal basic income for people who have not read your book like myself? And uh, no, I have read your book. I didn't mean to seem like I hadn't read your book. Uh, People who have not read your book, um, unlike myself, who has read it. And uh, how did you get interested in writing about it? So UBI, the idea is actually really simple. It's also a really old idea, um, like 500 years old, uh, almost. More than. Um, And the idea is just that the government gives everybody money, right? So think of it as kind of like social security for everybody, you know, possibly for all adults, possibly for for even including kids. And so um, the but, you know, drilling down on that a little bit, the idea is that you give people enough money to sort of boost most of them out of poverty, but not enough to uh, erode the incentive to work too much. And yeah, so no no country on earth really has this, but many countries have uh, policies that um, are sort of thematically similar, you know, our cash programs, our unconditional programs, our universal programs, um, and a bunch of countries are trialing this specific idea now. You call it in the book, at one point you say UBI is an ethos. What do you mean by that? So... The idea of giving everybody money contains within it a number of principles. So one is sort of of simplicity, right? The government is not going to ask you to do something in return for receiving the money. You won't have to meet certain conditions in order to get it. 
uh, which is different than a lot of the policies that we have, right? So, you know, you cannot, for instance, uh, get a TANF or a welfare payment unless you need meet a number of requirements, including work requirements. Um, oftentimes, there's also things like, you know, you have to seek child support from your kid's dad, that sort of stuff. Um, so there's there's that, uh, that kind of principle of unconditionality and sort of simplicity. There's this principle of universality. So most of our safety net programs um, are means tested, right? We kind of say like, okay, we're only going to give it to people who meet these kind of conditions, these pockets of people. Um, and then, you know, uh, there's there's sort of like other kind of things that are that are held within it too, right? Like there's this idea that the government should – and we as a society, kind of as an extension, should sort of put a floor under people um, in a very direct way and say, regardless of circumstance, we're going to be doing something to make sure that that you're never going to sink down that far. And that's, again, not something that the United States does. So you I mean, I know you said that there's a version of this that goes back a long way. Ideas about some version of it um, have existed for a long time. But I think you would also agree it's a fairly radical radical idea, at least for the United States in, in 2018. So what is it about where we are as a society that makes you think we need to start thinking about this now? Yeah. I mean, it's really important to note that Republicans are tacking in the opposite direction. So one thing that's happening right now is uh, the Trump administration is letting states attach work and volunteering requirements to Medicaid. Um, they are going to attach them to Section 8 and other federal housing programs. The uh, version of the Farm Bill that's in the House right now um, increases them in uh, food stamps and or SNAP is the formal name of the program. And what that fundamentally is doing is turning the entirety of the safety net into TANF or welfare, right? It's making it heavily contingent on requirements and work. It's making it a lot stingier. It's making it a lot smaller. Um, and so, you know, if you talk to a Republican, they'd say that the point is to get everybody working where possible, um, you know, if you're non-disabled or something like that. But, you know, functionally, what, what you're doing is making it smaller and more complicated. So this is, in some sense, not where the country is headed right now. But that said, um, we do have this kind of broad conversation that's been ongoing for, you know, a decade at this point about inequality, about the inability of even middle-class families to kind of keep their heads above water. There's a tremendous amount of fear about technological unemployment and about the next recession. And I think that it all comes down to this kind of fundamental sense of why why in the richest civilization the planet has ever known is there still sort of such deprivation and need. And that's not to say that deprivation and need is sort of the same as you'd see in a really low-income country. Um, but it's a lot. It's a lot more than you'd see in similarly wealthy countries. So, you know, Japan, for instance, or France, um, even leaving outside the kind of Nordic, more socialist countries. So, you know, your Sweden, your Finland, your Norway. And I think that we're searching for answers for that. Um, both Republicans and Democrats are searching for answers to that question. So you you mentioned eliminating deprivation and kind of that's one of the things you talk about in your book. And, and reading between the lines, I kind of thought that was the that was the aspect of UBI that maybe appealed most to you. But but the other things that you bring up and that other people who support UBI bring up is one that the idea that it would give workers more bargaining power, uh, the idea yeah. being that they would already have some money so they wouldn't be willing to take jobs for shitty wages, um, another was, and therefore help alleviate inequality somewhat. And also that uh, the sort of robot AI uh, infestation, if that's the word I want, is coming and we <laughs> need to be ready for it. So can you talk about those two other things and, and whether you think they're good reasons for UBI? 
Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of unintuitive, I think, a little bit. But say that all of us were getting 500 bucks a month from the government. Um, in some sense, that might make you less likely to work because you have that money. But it would also make you more likely to demand more from your employer because it's kind of like a like a strike fund uh, you know, you're not going to so readily accept a poverty wage if you have that 500 bucks. So the idea is that employers would have to make work better, give workers more money, um, and the equilibrium would kind of reset with with more power going to workers. This seems especially important given, you know, the Janice came, case just came came out of the Supreme Court this week. Um Unions are just in tatters. Private sector unions are, you know, functionally non-existent in huge parts of the economy. Public sector unions are now uh, getting kind of gutted. And so how do you restore power to workers? Um, this is one way to do it. Um, and it's a pretty compelling thing to think about. There's there's other ways to do that, right? So you can do that kind of statutorily through things like the minimum wage, um, through things like requiring more of employers in terms of insurance and benefits. So there's kind of lots of ways to skin the cat there, but this is this is one way to do it. And then for the technological unemployment, the sort of robots taking everybody's jobs argument, I actually find it hugely compelling. It's just that we don't really see any evidence that robots are actually taking everybody's jobs. Unemployment is pretty low. The really big issue is kind of wages and um and so that's not to say that, you know, and 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 it's worth noting that productivity is, you know, pretty low right now. And so that's not to say that that won't be a problem at some point. You know, I certainly think like 50 years from now, um that could be a really big issue. It's just that you you know, folks in Silicon Valley, they sort of make it seem like this is a really big problem right now that, you know, like all these Isaacs and Annies across the economy are getting replaced by a robot. It's just not true. Um, so I, I, I'm interested by that, but I find it so bizarre that for so lo- such a long time, the monopoly on the conversation was coming from people who are like, you should be terrified because a robot's taking your job. Uh, I will tell readers or listeners that a paragraph in your book is written by a robot, but they have to read your book to, uh, to understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, they'd have to, they'd have to get to the end. <laughs> Let, let me ask you this. How how long have you been thinking about this idea? And I think you you ducked my question at the beginning and, and this, this idea and wanting to write this book. And the reason I ask is because after you answer that, I'm curious because kind of our opinion of Silicon Valley and some of the people who are big names in Silicon Valley who are behind this, at least a lot of people's opinion has kind of changed and um, darkened in the past uh, couple years, probably since you started writing. And so I'm curious what you've made, what you made when you first started this of of the push in Silicon Valley for this idea and what you make of it today and if there's been any change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's been, I don't, I can't quite remember when I first heard about UBI, but I've been writing about it for a long time. It's been out in the ether um, in part because, you know, there's been this big movement in lower income, especially middle income countries to to move towards cash payments that that trend is now like 30 or 40 years old. Um, and yeah, in part because, you know, it became what I would say is that there was a moment in time where Silicon Valley was legitimately freaking out over their belief um, that they were creating technologies that would obviate the need for most human work. And when you talk to folks now, they especially point to AI. And I think that there's almost this this kind of funny, like, numinous quality to their arguments about it. And I can't tell you how many of these folks I've asked. And 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 they're just like, I when I look at AI, I see 
like this kind of amazing and awesome, but also terrifying thing. Um, you know, like we're going to put all of the truck drivers out of work because every car is going to be a self-driving car or like, oh, my gosh, Watson is better than doctors and, and soon we'll have micro robots and, you know, all of this. And and so I think that they're seeing this and, and there's this sense of guilt of like, wow, we're going to put these amazing technologies out there, but they're also going to make people's lives miserable. And so where I think that the kind of and I, I, I do think that the sort of like push for UBI comes out of a sense of guilt as well of a, as a sense of joy, right? Like there's this world in which like everybody has less work to do and it's really great. We spend more time in leisure. We spend more time with our kids. Um, but like that's not going to happen if, if people can't afford basics. And, you know, there's already millions of families that can't do that. And so um, where I think that the disconnect comes, why I find the UBI conversation out of Silicon Valley a little bit weird is that we would be able to see that happening if it were happening, Right. It's not hard to see um, in a national scale how robots would eliminate work. But like we just it's just impossible to see it in the numbers. And I think that that has to do with um, the ways that technology is changing work. Right. It, it might be depressing wages instead of eliminating work. And I also just think that a lot of the economy is is kind of it's healthcare work, it's education work, it's elder care work, it's stuff that's not actually easy to get a robot to do. Hosting podcasts, yeah. No, but I... I yeah. <laughs> I, but yeah, and the other thing that you said that, you know, that, that technology and Silicon Valley and what comes out of it may be changing work in terms of depressing wages, in terms of people taking part-time jobs without benefits and things like that. The the people in Silicon Valley who've been high on this idea, or many of them, don't seem as interested in ameliorating some of those things, which sort of makes me somewhat skeptical um, that they're so focused on this. Yeah, absolutely. And I also just think that there's a way in which, you know, so I, I live in D.C., right? And I can get my groceries delivered. Um, I can get like dinner delivered by a little robot that like people, it's so funny. It's like this little tiny, I don't know, it looks like a shoebox almost. Um, you know, I can summon a car to me. I could even, you know, but the truth is that those are not changing the kind of nuts and bolts of the economy and that very often those kind of services uh, like the gig economy functions in a few cities, but it's not. It's so funny. I was just um, I was just in uh, Des Moines and like there's no Instacart in Des Moines and Des Moines is a big city. Right. Um, and so uh, I think that that there's a certain myopia where they do just kind of a little bit forget that that the whole of the economy outside of like the Bay, D.C., Boston, New York, a couple other cities, it's just it's big and it's huge. And, you know, and and when you look at, at the kind of like innovation that really is kind of changing the economy in amazing ways, like a lot of it remains kind of industrial innovation coming from like big ag and big engineering companies, right? Like we kind of forget that or medical innovation coming from big pharma type thing. And and so I do. I think that that there's a weird thing where where they it seems like an all-encompassing phenomenon, but then once you get out into the country, like maybe it isn't so much. So I want to talk about some of the objections that different people have made to UBI. And um, yeah. one of the things you talk about in the book is that this is something that appeals, as I mentioned in the intro, in various forms to everyone from kind of young socialist to Charles Murray, the right-wing libertarian figure and author of The Bell Curve. And one of the fears of people on the left is that UBI 
FBI would be used by people like Murray and his ideological allies to sort of gut the safety net and replace it with UBI. And so what would seem like this really generous um, basic income that was given to anyone, if you added up all the benefits were actually being taken away, it would actually be a negative. So is that a, is that a political concern of yours? Yeah, absolutely. So there's um, there's this question of kind of how you're doing benefits, and then there's this question of how much. And in a lot of ways, how much is like 99% of the game there, right? Like Charles Murray's proposal, um, which I think he first put out, I'm forgetting the year, but it was in the 90s, late 90s. Um, although, yeah, I could be wrong about that, but it's been quite a while, is that you would give everybody $13,000, $3,000 of which would have to go to healthcare. So if you're an adult, you get $833 a month. And so if you look at the sum of benefits that would be going to a low-income family, lower-income family through the earned income tax credit, child tax credit, all sorts of other programs, you know, like whether it's SNAP, whether it's Medicaid, whether it's CHIP, way more money than that like way more money than that. So you could actually, you know, basically do that and and you would have, you know, say you're a single mom with a couple kids, you you'd be worse off. It's I, you know, the, the you can run the numbers and you very much could implement a UBI and have it increase poverty. And so that's why I really dis- dislike the idea that UBI is kind of bipartisan. And so the important thing is like you know, if you and I think this is the metaphor I use in the book, if you're spreading the butter really thin, like you're going to need more butter that or you're going to need to make sure that this is not a policy in isolation and that instead you're adding it to a safety net that's helping people in other ways. So one idea that I really do like and actually does have some bipartisan support that's growing in part because of its advocacy on the advocacy on the part of the Niskanen Center um, is the idea of doing basically a UBI for children. U- U.S. has a really high child poverty rate. Your average kid is way more likely to be impoverished than your average adult. It's like a it's a disaster from a public policy perspective because that sets kids on less healthy lifestyles, less health, like less good earnings trajectories. So you can imagine doing like a universal child benefit, and that would be a policy that would be like way cheaper than a big UBI, but but would be really helpful. So anyway, I think it's a really important thing that you've brought out that this, you know, this It's actually Mark Zuckerberg kind of talks about it as being bipartisan, and it's like it might be bipartisan in means, but it's not bipartisan in ends. Well, so the sort of catch-22, and I guess if to make this work would be require finding a balance um, between these different things, is that if – Part of the reason that a UBI appeals to some people, I think people like yourself probably, is that right now there's a tremendous stigma having to do with race, having to do with all kinds of things that is attached to a lot of our anti-poverty programs. And so the hope would be that a UBI would take some of that stigma away because it's universal. Is that fair the way I summarize that? Yeah, absolutely. So – again, it seems like part of the catch-22 is that if the programs are kept there – in addition to UBI, that the stigma would remain in some way and we'd get sort of still the political insanity around, you know, Medicaid or stuff that we have now. And if the programs were taken away, then you'd have a situation, as we discussed earlier, that, you know, it wouldn't be as generous for people. And so finding the right balance between those things seems really hard to do. Yeah, it's really, really tough. And I think that this is like something that UBI's boosters have not necessarily grappled with in a complete way, right? Like, it kind of gets talked about as being sort of this magic bullet. And it really, you know, it isn't. It's it's a tool. And it's why, and I think that this is something that I hope comes through in the book, like 
UBI is instructive as a kind of object lesson and a way to think about other policies and other goals in other policies. Um, I, despite writing a whole book about it, am not sure it's actually like the best policy or the thing that we should be pushing for as a country. And so, yeah, to kind of like unpack even more a little bit of what you were talking about, part of the issue in the United States, part of the reason that we have a lot of deprivation and poverty is that we have a system that basically says if if we classify you as a non-disabled adult without dependents, you are almost always, depending on the state that you're in, you're usually denied benefits. Um, we also tend to put like a focus on adults um, and therefore uh, allow a lot of child poverty that wouldn't exist again in a country like France, right? So like that's that's one issue. And a UBI can help with that because it would take some stigma out. It would make it so that like if you fall into one of these classes of people that tend to get denied benefits, that you would have something. Um, and then you might have these other kind of, you know, um, salutary benefits for all workers, which would be good. But, you know, I, I think that you're right that the politics of it are really, really hard. And the reason that we have such a fragmented safety net is because of our racial history. And I think that there's a way in which, you know, like the resistance to this would become um, really deep and really powerful if people felt like people were getting something for nothing and weren't working because of it. So, you know, I think it's a hard fit with um, the United States' ethos in our politics right now. But it's an interesting way of thinking about that ethos and those politics. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's complicated, I guess, because at one level, universal programs seem to have broader popular support than um, need-based programs, if you look at poll- Absolutely. polling figures. I mean, I know things like the EITC and Medicaid are, are broadly speaking, popular. But, but so, yeah. Social Security and Medicare are kind of... Um, the most popular programs we have. At the same time, people can always kind of convince themselves that I'm getting something and someone else who is different than me in some way uh, doesn't deserve it, even though we're getting the same thing and everyone gets it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's there's a really interesting, if you look at the politics of Obamacare, right? Um, if you look at lower middle income folks who are getting um, benefits through the exchanges, and those benefits are often kind of expensive, and they're sort of complicated, right? You have to go to this online system, and there's like enrollment periods or whatever. Those people are deeply resentful of the Medicaid expansion often, because like Medicaid, first of all, they think it's better insurance. Second, it's simpler. And third, it's kind of more automatic. And, you know, I think that those politics are are really fascinating. We've seen, like, lessons like that again and again and again. Um, but, yeah, you know, um, one other way I would note that policies tend to be more popular is when they're hidden through the tax code, right? So, like, there's no constituency that hates the earned income tax credit. Uh, certainly not in the same way that there's just a lot of judgment and stigma around, you know, a program like TANF or even food stamps. So, one... Um, policy proposal that I think is actually a really good one. It's written in a paper by a guy named Luke Schaefer and his co-authors. And he's like one of the great poverty scholars. He's a co-author of a book called $2 a Day with Kathy Eden. Um, It's just a really great book. The idea would be basically to run a UBI through the tax code. So what you would do is you'd probably take away some of the programs aimed at lower income Americans and using the tax code, you would bump them all, whether they had earned income or not, up to a given level. This would probably be more efficient and it probably, you know, wouldn't engender as much resistance. Um, Again, like policies that are hidden in the tax code, Americans just don't think of as being government benefits, even though they are with a kind of categorical example here. 
here being that um, Susan Mettler, who's um, a great political scientist, asked people whether they benefited from a government program and a bunch of middle income people who use the um, uh, mortgage interest deduction are like, no, I've never I've never benefited from one. Right. right? But of course they have. They just don't know. <laughs> well, you know, this the, the, the last thing I was going to raise on, on this issue of the politics of it and how how to think about it is at one point you ask in the book is our american sense of work compatible with ubi because there's an argument out there by some people that essentially americans place kind of more value on work as a society and kind of the worth we give it in the larger meaning to our lives um than in other european countries and so it would sort of be a less good fit here and i guess one of the consequences of that argument would be that it would sort of be less politically tenable to give everyone this benefit because we think people should be working or or whatever. I mean, by the time you, after traveling around and looking at different experiments in different countries and, and obviously reporting on the economy back here, how did you feel about that argument? Yeah, I think that this is a really important thing. And again, a thing that I think that that UBI folks have to grapple with. So let's imagine that we have this huge surge of productivity and you and I get replaced by robots and all the truck drivers get replaced by robots. Everybody gets replaced by robots. Um, and let's say that in that world, you know, you take your person who's making a nice middle class wage, you know, $60,000 a year or something, and you're like, it's OK. We have a $12,000 a year UBI. That's a miserable, awful world, right? Like, people are not going to be happy with that. Like, who's going to be happy to lose a job and instead get, you know, like kind of like a welfare payment that doesn't really cover their past, you know, their past um, salary? And more than that, yeah, like Americans really do like working. They find a lot of value in it. And um, there's this great study um, that looks at folks who are older and um, when they stop calling themselves unemployed and start calling themselves retired, they get like markedly happier. Like they're literally just happier as, as people. And so it's it's funny because like, uh, you know, it's just I um, I just started reading David Graeber's bullshit jobs. Right. Like there's a lot of work and work sucks and it's underpaid. But people, people, even really low-income people, want to work. They want all of the benefits that come with working, of just going to an office and you know having a place to go. They want the security that comes with it. And so it's not impossible to imagine a kind of future in which there is a lot less work and people are happy. Um, it's just that you would need like a really deep cultural shift and economic shift around it. And um, there's definitely like futurists and economists and also kind of like more radical thinkers who, who've started thinking about this, about like, let's make a world without work and let's enjoy that. Um, but it's just it seems totally incompatible with with how we feel about work and how it functions in our lives here in the United States right now. So before you go, you, you mentioned briefly that even though you're not 100% sure on exactly what the best policy is here is. I mean, it's impossible to be 100% sure on something like that, but that you had kind of gotten new ideas about the best way to do social programs. And that's one of the things you talk about in the book. You go to Kenya, you go to India. The book starts yeah. uh, in South Korea. So what is it, what, what was the common thread that you saw in different things in very different countries about the way government can help out its citizens that, that you think are lessons that are universally applicable? Yeah. I mean, so one one really obvious one that comes out of this is that the government should, in many cases, just give people cash as opposed to trying to do something else. So 
you know, if we had the U.S. government leave all of its programs in place, but instead of getting a food stamp that you could only use in a really specific thing, we just gave you the money. Um, I think that it's hard to argue that that wouldn't be a better world. Right. Um, that money is more valuable to you if it's fungible. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, and there's so many studies about this, that, that you know, people will take their food stamps and they'll sell them because they need to have cash to play the electric bill to keep the lights on. Or, you know, they need gas to get to work, right? Poor people, just like lower income folks, you know, they just, they, they have these needs. And so we, you know, um, trying to address them in the, in the way that's most fungible and easy for them is, is just to give people money. Um, hence, hence the title of the book. So that's that's one thing. Um, and the second thing is that I do think that um, there is something to be said for for universal programs for at least ensuring that everybody gets things somewhat more automatically um, than having to go through a kind of arduous application process. So whether that's running things through the tax code, which I think is kind of a good idea, or whether um, it's just making programs more universal, sort of like you see with Social Security. I think that there's a lot to be said for it. And again, you know, we're tacking really hard in the other direction right now. Um, and that's something that, you know, is there in the book. But um, those are lessons that, that that are applicable in really low-income countries and, and uh, with us in really high-income country. Yeah, when every government program is declared unconstitutional, uh, this will all be moot. But hopefully... Uh... <laughs> Hopefully not until you sell some books. But no, I mean, the last, last, last thing. But is there a way short of UBI just in the short term that you think Democrats or liberals or people, uh, anybody who wants to kind of um, expand or solidify the safety net should be talking about sort of giving people money is, is I think, um, just hearing the words is is an American. It's sort of a tough sell that there's a you know. Oh yeah. And so is is there some way you think people should be talking about it differently, at least in the short term? Because if we can't have UBI, um, it it does or or whatever it does seem necessary to kind of expand some of these programs. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, and you know, to go back to a point I was making before, I think the low hanging fruit. So the thing that would be. Um, most beneficial to the most at-risk people and might still be politically palatable on both sides of the aisle is a universal child benefit or even a means-tested, a broadly means-tested child benefit, um, cash benefit. And so, you know, the benefit of that would be, so you could eradicate the welfare program, which is a piece of garbage um, in this world, a piece of garbage for a lot of reasons um, in that world. Say that you took the $16.5 billion a year that we spent on TANF and instead, uh, you know, sent it out to the most at-risk kids, right? Like, I think that that's, you know, that's something that the Clinton campaign had talked about doing. Um, it's something that I think you could get bipartisan support for. Basically, you put it under the banner of like, no more kids in poverty here. Um, and I, I think that that would be politically palatable. You have even some really conservative um, senators. So, you know, your Mike Lees, who who really do take issue with child poverty and really want to do something about it. So I think that that's possible. Um, and then, you know, I think that, that that there's been proposals to do stuff like expanding the EITC a lot um, that have kind of like a UBI type motivation. Um, but probably fit within our pro- political parameters a lot, a lot better. And then, you know, I, I think that the kind of the X factor here, the thing that I'm not so sure about is it does just feel like the Overton window is a lot bigger now um, that Donald Trump was elected. The people are really ticked off in the event that there's another recession. I think that the the space for policymaking will expand even more radically. Um, so maybe it is a time for just big ideas. Um, like authoritarianism. Yeah. <laughs> big idea. 
uh, yeah, like like nine conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the window has shifted. Uh, Annie Lowry is a contributing editor at The Atlantic, and the new book that she wrote, and which I am holding in my hands, but you can't see, is Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. Annie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to extra engineering help this week from Jason DeLeon at State Studios in New York. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more information about the show. Thanks for listening.